And welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. Today we are going to talk about the latest news in European tech, about the new faces of the Slush conference, about a startup that makes our roads smart, and much more. Let us start today with a European tech news briefing, courtesy of our reporter Annie Musgrove and founding editor Robin Wouters. It's earnings time now, so get ready for some stats and numbers. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. Spotify has reported its Q4 results, and here are the main numbers. Company now has 271 million subscribers, up 31% from a year ago. Paying users are up 29% to 125 million. Overall revenues for the quarter hit 1.9 billion euros, up 24%. And Spotify has again posted a big operating loss, this time of 77 million euro. Spotify has also reported that podcasts on its platform have grown 200% over the last year. More than one in eight monthly active users listens to podcasts. On that note, Spotify is buying The Ringer, the podcast-centric media company run and owned by Bill Simmons, a popular American sports writer and podcaster. The Ringer employs people and produces some 30 podcast titles at the moment. In a tweet, Simmons said, quote, The Ringer will remain the Ringer in every respect. They, that is Spotify, appreciate what we do and want us to be us. Next, Worldline, a financial services company, announced that it would acquire Ingenico in a cash and share deal at a valuation of 7.8 billion euro, TechCrunch reports. Both companies are based in France and were established in the first big wave of electronic financial services that formed in the 1970s and 80s. Worldline provides everything from in-store point-of-sale terminals through to online payments, data analytics, banking and fraud protection, and so on, while Ingenico is a huge point-of-sale terminal provider that controls 30% of the global market. Next, fintech unicorn Revolut is shifting responsibility for its European payments from London to Ireland and Lithuania after Brexit, The Telegraph reported. Revolut's chief operating officer, Richard Davies, also said that the decision to pursue a three-licensed hub model, that is, with hubs in the UK, Ireland, and Lithuania, was due to the loss of passporting rights into EU countries after the transition agreement ends. He also said that Revolut will open credit offerings for the first time later this year. French startup BlaBlaCar has boasted that the company's revenue grew by 71% in 2019 compared to 2018, TechCrunch reports. The company now has 87 million users, with 17 million people signing up in 2019 alone. BlaBlaCar carried 70 million passengers across all its services last year. And the big difference between 2018 and 2019 is that BlaBlaCar diversified its activity, in November 2018, the company acquired WeBus to become a marketplace for road travel, whether by car or by bus. WeBus is now called Blah Blah Bus. Blah Blah Car also offers a carpooling marketplace for daily commutes between your home and work, and that's called Blah Blah Lines. French gaming giant Ubisoft has acquired 75% of Berlin-based Calibri Games. Calibri is a developer of mobile, free-to-play games and one of the leaders of the idle games genre. It's mostly known by its title, Idle Ty Minor Tycoon. 
Last summer, Ubisoft bought 75% of another idle gaming startup called Green Panda Games. So what's an idle game then? Well, per Wikipedia, it's a video game where the player needs to perform simple actions, such as clicking on the screen, repeatedly to earn some in-game currency. In some games, even the clicking becomes unnecessary, as the game plays itself, even in the player's absence. French competition watchdog DGCCRF has fined Apple 25 million euros due to an iOS update that capped performances of aging devices. TechCrunch explains that a couple years ago, Apple released an iOS update that introduced a new feature for older devices. If your battery is getting old, iOS would cap peak performances as your battery might not be able to handle quick peaks of power draw. While that feature is technically fine, Apple failed to inform users about it. Apple will not appeal the decision. It's already accepted to settle by paying the 25 million euro fine and has publicly acknowledged the wrongdoing with a statement on its website. Spanish unicorn Cabify claims to be the first standalone ride-hailing company in the world that's become profitable, the Financial Times reports. Cabify is based in Madrid and is also active in 10 Latin American countries. The company has marked up a small profit of 3 million U.S. dollars for the fourth quarter of 2019. In comparison, Uber has been saying for a long time that its ride-hailing business is also profitable. However, as a company, it still takes huge losses. Actually, Uber's quarterly losses are close to the latest public valuation of Cabify, which reached 1.4 billion U.S. dollars as of 2018. The European Parliament has insisted it has no plans to introduce facial recognition technology, The Guardian reports. It had to make this statement after a leaked internal memo discussing the use of facial recognition and security provoked an outcry. A page on the European Parliament's intranet, seen by The Guardian, suggested that facial recognition could be used, quote, in the context of biometric-based security and services to members. A spokesperson for the Parliament said, quote, there is no project of facial recognition in the European Parliament, adding that it was, quote, not foreseen on any level. The Irish Data Protection Commission, or DPC, has opened a formal investigation into how Google is processing location data, TechCrunch reports. This happens more than a year after the DPC received a series of complaints from consumer rights groups across Europe. The complaints argue that consent to share users' location data is not valid under EU law because it's not freely given. The argument is that consumers are rather being tricked into accepting what the rights groups call privacy-intrusive settings. Finally, French space tech startup Kines, based in Toulouse, has landed 100 million euros in funding. Kines is a spin-out of the aeronautics giant CLS, which holds a 32% share in the startup and is also one of the investors in this round. Kines will use the money to create a constellation of nanosatellites that targets the Internet of Things and its objects. Kines is building satellites that weigh about 30 kilos each, and the company has already launched eight of them, with plans to launch a total of 25 by the year 2022. These were some of the most important European tech news from the week of February 3rd, I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Annie, thank you so much for the brilliant recap. Now we are certainly ready to dive into the topics of today. So if you have listened to this podcast for a while, you may remember myself and Natalie Novik mentioning that one of our favorite European tech conferences is Slush in Helsinki. 
It is a solid event, and we are always following the news coming from that direction. Now, here is the latest. Slush has just appointed a new CEO and a new president, Mika Huttunen and Ona Poropudas, respectively. Leadership rotation is something that Slush is known for, and its top management changes every few years, so the news is not very surprising. It is always, however, interesting to learn what the new leaders think. And that's why I got on the phone with Mika, the new CEO, a couple of days ago. So keep listening, there is a really interesting piece of news coming up in this conversation. My name is Mika Huttunen, and I'm the CEO of Slush, a global movement for entrepreneurs. Uh, what, uh, what was your Slush journey like? Because you joined uh, some years ago, right? So I, I started that Slush, I, I heard about Slush early 2014. I didn't really know what, what was it, but it seemed to be really interesting and it seemed to be totally different what I have seen before. And, and I think the atmosphere in Finland back in the days or back in 2014 was fairly negative. Obviously Nokia uh, news were three years earlier and, and the overall atmosphere, for example, around, around financial climate and all those was not that positive. And so Slush was... For me, a uh, really energizing uh, movement that people were really optimistic about the future. And 2014, I, I really wanted to learn more. So I joined as a volunteer. Next year, I, I continued as a volunteer, did the same thing to what I did in 2014. So handled batches and wristbands for our, our attendees. And 2016, I, I was a bit uh, late for, for the volunteer application. So I actually sent email straight to the slush team that if you need help let me know i would love to love to help somehow and i actually during that year was interviewing some of our biggest speakers in 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 speaker studio which was a concept where after speaker was on the main stage they they or on or on the founder stage they they came there and have a more intimate discussion with small small crowd and 2017 i i basically did the same thing and 2018 i i joined slash full-time for the partnership team 2019 i was uh, chief operating officer and and now ceo now the core team of slush is 29 people and that includes a few recently hired data scientists and researchers who analyzed the treasure trove of data collected by the conference since 2013 the research team um which is also known as the strategy and insights team they, they have basically two two roles it's both to provide insights for us internally and also obviously support me in, in, in the strategy work. But there is a lot of things that um, we can do much better, let's say, like uh, how we use data, which we collect, um, how we can provide insights out of that. And good example, um, for example, is, is um, how we can use that better in our decision making, but also externally. And that's the second point. So the research team also provides and produces external insights for which we can share, for example, in, in our media, soaked by slush. And one example is, is that uh, we crunched basically six years of different data from startups that have attended Slush Helsinki and learned and, and tried to learn and understand like what kind of things are now hot and, and what kind of words and sentiments has there been in the applications. Before talking about the current issues, I also asked Mika about his vision of why slush is actually worth coming to and what could make entrepreneurs and other ecosystem players return to Helsinki in November or December year after year. Yeah, we always try to make slush as an event, a place that 
a bit not connected to the real world. It's it's totally different place. <laughs> so that's the production. And that second thing is that we try to make meeting other people as efficient as possible. So we try to pack basically months of meetings into two days. So we try we, we optimize that by getting the right people inside. So whether it's startups or investors, we have in-house built matchmaking tool for that. So basically at SLAS you can you can people have said you can practically save two months of traveling around the world uh, that you can do basically in, in two days in Slush. But obviously, from the content side, we always think about our content. So how it can be really, really helpful for, for, for entrepreneurs and investors. So we try to provide extremely hands-on content uh, that can actually provide um, some additional value for, your, for, for building your company. Mika also told me that Slush is not going the Web Summit way. That is, there is no plan to grow the event in terms of the number of attendees, which I think is great. I love it exactly the way it is. As speaking of Slush the way it is, one of the distinctive features of the conference is the side events. There has always been a lot of them all over Helsinki, organized by all sorts of companies and organizations. However, there is something about those events that I find increasingly unsettling. There are very different uh, sort of events uh, happening around the conference. And uh, I feel that there is this rising number of sort of hidden events, like invite-only side events. And uh, that, in my opinion, may be creating some sort of unhealthy dynamics around Slush. And these kind of events uh, often feel very exclusive. And uh, I don't think that uh, this is the sort of value that Slush is about. Have you have you ever been uh, alerted to that? Uh, do you Are you thinking about uh, this this as a problem or not at all? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question, and I think it's happening in each event around the world and in each gathering around the world. I think it's like like whether it's it's people meeting each other, and and it's it's always a good thing. So I didn't necessarily see that as a bad thing, but it also means that we have to keep in mind that we have to create the two days inside of the Helsinki Exhibition Center, the main the main event, that good that you can still really surprisingly meet other people and, and meet really high level people and so of course um part of slush is that you can basically on the floor pop to really really prestigious investor or prestigious startup and and we want to keep it that way but i don't necessarily see that that having some private dinners or those uh is a bad thing it's it's simply a um, good thing that people meet together and it's it's happening uh all around the world in different events Do you think it is still happening, uh, the serendipity of it? Because to me, it sometimes feels like if you want to network with uh, certain people, you kind of have to hustle your way to those uh, invite-only events uh, around the city. Yeah, of course. Like, uh, of course, you lose something when when you grow the size. But but uh, for that reason, um, for example, what we had done with the side events and with the main event, Uh, we have improved our matchmaking tool so you, so you can more easily meet these people. We have uh, created a pretty clear list to our website, like what kind of side events are happening, uh, where you can join. We we are using a lot of time uh, ourselves as a team, inviting different people to the right side events based on their interests. So, of course, it's it's in our DNA and in, in the core that uh, the people meet the right people. And also the serendipity, what you mentioned, that, that we have we want to ensure that it happens and and the best way to ensure that is is that we attract a lot of the right people 
to the to the to the whole week and and the Helsinki. For example, last year with investors, we actually were the biggest uh, venture capital gathering in, in the world, uh, as we have close to two thousand investors um, in the whole whole event. And by having that amount. Uh, that number of, of investors in the main event, it means that, that there is high chance for serendipity. And another long-time feature of Slush is the sauna village. In case you don't know, that's a bunch of actual Finnish saunas where attendees can relax during the day. And the practice attracted some critical press last year as it was repeatedly called not inclusive. The point was that women, especially those not born and raised in the Nordics and Baltics, often feel uncomfortable having to network in this kind of environment. So is Slush 2020 going to address this critique in any way at all? Yeah, well, diversity and inclusion is is one of the most important values for us, and 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 we want to ensure that the event is is inclusive and 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 there is good to be for each each single people. So, uh, therefore, for example, this for for the upcoming year, we are planning to do something different than than Sona Village. When are we going to learn about what is going to be? It's it's currently in the making, and and we want to keep it in secret. Now this is quite big news for everyone who's been to Slush. No Sona Village this time, and now I'm extremely curious to see what is going to be. And if you have any ideas about the possible substitutions, let me know on Twitter. Let's speculate together. That's something I'm always happy to do. And speaking of great events, by the way, in the Nordics and Baltics, uh, on February 20th and 21st, I am going to be in Riga at TechChill, and that's another all-time favorite tech conference of the TechEU team. Our news reporter, Annie Musgrove, is attending as well, and so is Natalie Novik, who used to co-host this podcast for a long time. So come and say hi to us all. We are always happy to talk. Now, let's move on to the next topic of today's show. A few weeks ago, Natalie talked about Valoran, and that's a startup from Israel and the UK that claims to be able to make our roads smart. One of the more interesting startups that I think you should keep your eye on has just been awarded this year. So this week, 2020's Best of Innovation Award at the Consumer Electronics Show. And they're called Valoran, and they're from the UK. And they've work to make roads smart by using integrated sensor technology, which is built into the road itself. The closed-loop system allows the road to be an active part of the mobility ecosystem. And the company was founded in 2016, and since then, they've gained incredible momentum, winning prizes from South Summit's most disruptive startup in 2018 to being named one of Europe's leading GovTech startups. It will be pretty exciting to see where they go because the market for good technology around road safety is huge. So I really wanted to learn more about the company and that's why I decided to talk to Michael Vardy from Valoran and Angela Montanches from Global Via. Uh, recently, Valoran and Global Via started a pilot project in Spain to test the smart technology that Valoran's been working on. Now, let's see what the future of our roads could look like in the near future. Michael, tell me a bit more about yourself and uh, Valoran. Um, sure. Well, uh, to put it shortly, Valoran makes uh, roads smart. I, I, I specifically find the company much more interesting than me, so I usually start with that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm uh, one of the I'm one of the co-founders. I, um, I we, you know I started with another three co-founders the company uh, just about four years ago. My background was kind of dual background. On the one hand, I did uh, consulting focused on connected vehicles and connected autonomous vehicles and transport. On the other hand, I worked a lot in the Israeli prime minister's office 
in helping government, large government organizations become data-centric organizations. Mm-hmm. And uh, because that uh, Valoran that makes roads smart and enables road operators, you know, potentially one of the most important uh, organizations in our lives that we are not aware of, uh, make help them become much more data savvy and help them take their natural role as an active participant in the future of mobility. Mm-hmm. Great. And where are you based now? So I am based in London. Uh, Valorant as a company is, is co-located. We're a binational company. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the company, so myself, one of the co-founders, the CEO, as well as the data team, we sit in London. Uh, but the majority of the tech development is in Tel Aviv and Israel. And why is it set up like this? So uh, as I said before, we, uh, our objective is to enable, data enable our, our partners. Uh, but we want to do this with the best tech possible. So the majority of the R&D is done in Israel to make sure that the systems we built, um, we have the best talent available to build the systems we're building. On the other hand, but specifically the data team, they are not developing in a vacuum. They need to be developing with our partners, with the road operators, working with them to understand how the data can add most value, how it can continue to develop the value it's providing. And that's why the data team sits with us in London. So they are very close to our partners and can actively work with them throughout our projects. Right. So let's talk about Valorant. Uh, your motto uh, is making the road smart. And uh, what? Uh, how exactly uh, do you achieve that? So we do that by, first of all, understanding what is the unique advantage of roads and what where do roads add, add value. And roads are... You know, they're the infrastructure uh, that are the baseline for uh, all our transport or almost all our transport. And um, in the same way, they can kind of be the, this kind of represents also the value they can provide. What roads bring that nothing else can bring is this ability to really um, sense and know exactly what's happening on the road and all the events that are happening on the road. So what we do is we enable roads to become a comprehensive, reliable, full source of information uh, about everything that happens on the road. So our roads, the roads that we work on, for the first time have full visibility um, of every single vehicle on its exact driving pattern uh, down to 10 centimeter accuracy. Now this data, which is all anonymous, allows roads, one, to make our journeys much safer because they see risks, they see accidents and can respond, a lot faster because they can detect and even prevent congestion sooner, but also become an active and valuable player in the future of, on, in the future of autonomy because they can use this unique data set to help support autonomous vehicles in some of the areas they find most challenging. Right. And uh, as far as I understand uh, from the website and the presentation videos I saw, uh, the technology is basically hardware and uh, both hardware and software, right? So the yes, the the heart of the of the company is is a data platform that can take data from any source and turn it into this comprehensive, micro detailed data set. Um, we are agnostic to the sensors that we use, uh, but what we found is that uh, the majority of sensors in the market are not yet mature enough to provide the level of data that is required to really add value. 
And because of this, we also offer a sensory platform, an IoT-based sensory platform uh, that is based on, on many small sensors that you installed in the road that collect this data. Right. And uh, so so those uh, sensors, I saw them in the video. Those are like smart studs, as you call yeah. them. They, they, they look really cool, but uh, what, uh, what's included yeah. in them? What, uh, what kind of sensors? Sure. So um, each stud in itself is, is quite simple, quote unquote. It's a solar powered uh, with battery. It has a, it is based on our own version of LoRa for communication. It has six different sensors. Those sensors can detect movement. They can detect stationary objects and they can detect ambient environment conditions. Uh, but each one uh, connect, basically gets very rough data, but it sends that data to the cloud. And then what's interesting is that when you take uh, signals from many sensors in a row, you start seeing patterns. And those patterns represent the driving pattern of every single vehicle. You put those together, you start seeing traffic, uh, traffic flow. And once you can analyze traffic flow, you can also identify disruptions and risks. Right. And uh, a very practical question. How expensive mm-hmm. are these uh, sensors, st- these studs? So um, they are, so in compare because they are wireless, because they are basically off-grid, we don't require any supportive infrastructure. We don't require any big civil works to put them in place. We are actually up to 95% more economic than alternative comprehensive solutions but still how much would it cost to cover like one kilometer of a road uh, with this sort of studs so um the price would start at about you know about um eight um eight thousand euros for a kilometer mm-hmm. and then now there's a lot of dependency on on exactly what you want to see and the lanes and the amount of lanes you have and the use cases but that's that's where we're starting and then the um from there you you and what we do is we provide a service. We provide a data service, which is charged according to the length of the road and the use cases you want to see. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just a last question about the company itself. Uh, you have uh, raised money before, right? Yeah, yeah. So we raised money uh, in end. So in we closed around uh, between August and October of 2018. Mm-hmm. We, you know, and we're now we're now raising another round. Uh, because we have a few big projects and the one the most exciting ones is the one with Global Via, which we'll talk about soon. And we're raising money to to deliver on these projects and show the value that such micro data can provide before um because we think that's something that people will get very excited about. All right. And how big is the company right now? How many people do you have? So today we are twenty-four people. The vast majority are engineers. Right. I am definitely one of the least smart people in the room when we have our company <laughs> meetings. <laughs> I see. Angela, uh, let's talk to you. Uh, let's turn to you for a little bit. Uh, so uh, Global Via, what is it? And uh, what is the project that uh, you are working on uh, together with uh, Valoran? Thanks. Yeah. So Global Via is a world-leading transport infrastructure operator. We are located in eight countries, in Spain, in Portugal, Ireland, Andorra, Mexico, Chile, Costa Rica, and the U.S. And we mainly operate road concessions, but also rail uh, projects. The kind of services we provide are traffic and demand management services, operation and maintenance, and also technology supply. So over the past years, we've been working on the future of mobility, the future of roads, uh, 
And we truly believe that we need a digitized infrastructure, a connected and intelligent infrastructure, because unlike other companies or other sectors that have become a commodity, we don't want to become a commodity in this new world. So for that reason, it's key to to digitize and to have lots of data to become a data-driven organization. So uh, we, we do have lots of uh, ITS in our roads. So we have cameras to detect incidents. We have radars to detect stuff vehicles, loops to count. There's lots of, of technology. Probably all these technologies from the 1980s. So maybe what took us here won't take us uh, to the future. And that's why when we came across with Valeran and they're really, really interesting solution, we said, well, I mean, we should try it and and definitely start digitizing our infrastructure. Right. So what uh, what is the what was the project like? What uh, what does it include? What's the scope here? Yes. So we've recently deployed deployed in in Madrid, uh, the first uh, part of the project. Um, it's an M45 um, motorway. Uh, it's 200 meters um, in in one lane, but we our idea is to to scale and and continue deploying the um, the, um, the solution in in a wider section of the motorway. So right now our objective is to gain um, a comprehensive data from the road and and provide ha- hazard alerts, lack of detection and another critical information for traffic management. Imagine like we can now detect when one single car enters into the section and we can understand if they're doing like some suspicious change lane changing or or even if you can actually foresee when a traffic jam it's coming and then take action on that and be able to to offer a better planning and um, at the end of the day a better service to to the users. So, and uh, do you think that for you as a company, for Global Via, it makes uh, business sense to have uh, this sort of enhanced understanding of what's uh, going on on the road? And why is it that? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I truly believe definitely that we need to to understand and get microdata on what what's happening on our roads, because right now we obviously have, uh, as I said, lots of technology that kind of tell us what is happening but sometimes it's difficult to to predict or sometimes it's also difficult to to foresee different incidents and also the the time that it takes to to go and and offer services uh, or support to to the user we also understand that all this data that we are collecting and all this information that we have would be very valuable for the driver imagine you are driving like in the morning and and there's works ahead or or anything might have happened, wouldn't you like to have that information on your mobile phone or, or directly onto your car? Wouldn't it be helpful for you and, and your driving to get safer and more efficient to your destination? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, the question is, uh, Michael, maybe it's a question for you. Uh, does uh, Valorant work uh, in any way with... Uh, for example, different navigation apps that people normally use, like Waze or Google Maps or whatever. So, um, first of all, 100%. Uh, the, first of all, maybe a, a way to understand, like ma- apps are a very good way to understand the value we, we provide. And then from there, you see how we can actually integrate into them. When you want to go to from A to B, okay, you can ask Waze or Google Maps how long this will take me. And it'll give you a, an overall route. It'll tell you it'll take you half an hour to get there. 
This is what we call macro data, a high-level understanding of what is happening. Now, that's great if you want to plan how to get somewhere. It's not as useful if you want to try and do something about it. In order to try and understand and to prevent things, to manage things, you need to know why they're happening. You need to know micro data. And what Valorant provides, Valorant provides a detailed understanding of how every single vehicle is moving down to a vehicle, down to a lane. And that allows road operators, first of all, uh, to try and see how they can manage this, how they can prevent congestions from actually happening in the first place, or at the very least mitigate them. This same level of data is super useful for navigation. Imagine you're driving on a road, and I can tell you 500 meters in advance, the upcoming exit is quite congested. You should move now to the middle lane to avoid that, uh, you know, that queue uh, so that you can, you, making your overall journey faster and much safer because you don't need to do any last minute changes. So this is the type of data we would want to provide to, to navigation apps. And it's also the type of data that we will be providing to autonomous vehicles. Uh, Angela started talking about, you know, the next phase that we're planning to do uh, in around Q2 this year uh, about uh, increasing the, the size of the installation uh, where we're currently talked about five kilometer lines uh, of road. And we will include in this uh, sending data directly to autonomous vehicles and helping them in the some of the areas they find most challenging today, specifically around how to integrate to legacy traffic. I, I noticed that um, uh, there was this phrase in your presentation video about connecting the non-connected vehicles. So how, how is that going to work? Um, so this is, again, it, it comes back to the, to the competitive advantage, if you will, of roads when it comes to the world of data. Connected cars today and in the future are going to provide us a wealth of information about how they are behaving. And they'll give us unparalleled insights into traffic flow, etc. But what they will not give us anytime soon is a certainty that we know all of the vehicles in our vicinity, where they are and what they're doing. Because not all vehicles will be sharing all their information all the time anytime soon. Right. What the road does, the road gives a full comprehensive picture of 100% of vehicles whether they're connected or not connected, just through the the passive sensors that we have. Once you have this image, you can almost imagine a two-dimensional map of of the lanes and you see the small cars moving in them. This map is a map that you can provide in real time to connected vehicles, allowing them to know not only the location of other connected vehicles, but also the location of the legacy vehicles. So if they merge into traffic, they know to take into consideration, you know, also... The, you know, the collector's, the collector's edition 1978 uh, Renault that uh, someone just wanted to drive and it's not connected. But we will be able to see that, share that information with the connected car so it knows to plan its entry, its merge into traffic accordingly. Great, understood. Uh, a question, uh, a question for uh, for Angela. Then, I guess you already have uh, cameras. Uh, somewhere on the roads anyway, and now adding this uh, uh, technology by uh, Valoran. Uh, how do you approach the question of privacy in this case? 
Well, I mean, we don't normally, I mean, we do have cameras to, to identify if anything's happening on our roads and then uh, do the emergency and, you know, protocols and everything. So, I mean, it's just simply like that. I mean, we don't mean to to use the data to monetize the data or anything. The purpose is operations and, and security and, and efficiency. And that's how it should um, continue. So you don't store uh, this data? Well, I mean, we store some data for, I mean, for legal reasons, because if there are some accidents or some, or some incidents, we need to be able to, to go back to the data and, and, and provide it. But um, normally, after that period, it's uh, legally over, we, we delete it. We don't, we don't keep the data. Right. So uh, let's imagine that uh, everything uh, goes uh, stellar uh, with this project and you get results that you're happy with. How long do you think would it take for any meaningful distances of your roads to be covered with this kind of technology? Well, uh, our ideas go little by little. Once that we've proved uh, the value that we are doing in, in all the phases of the project uh, would be to deploy uh, probably M45, and then um, continue deploying in other countries. And obviously mixing with different ITS um, stuff that we already have on our roads and covering all the use cases that we want to provide uh, to our users and, and, and also to the public administrations. Do you think these changes are going to bring uh, an increase in the price of the uh, in the tolls on the on your roads? No, we don't. We don't foresee that's going to have an impact on the um, tolling fees uh, because it, on one hand, it will substitute what we already have, or or it will be covered by by the different information that we'll be delivering. So no, we don't foresee that. Right. And uh, Michael, a uh, question for you. So how long did it take you to get to this point? And uh, is it the only project that you are involved uh, uh, in at the moment? So it took us, so it, I think the, the, in a way, two phases. There's one, making sure that the tech works. Now we have a, quite a complex tech stack um, mm -hmm. on, on the sensory side and on the data side. And now that we've developed both these products, uh, we've been um, actively trying to you say commercialize the the system for uh, about uh, about a year now and and we formally launched you know the the system as a product with global via and ces uh, two weeks ago but except global via i'm also happy to share that uh, two days ago we were uh, we were told that we won a, a big rfp in israel competing against actually uh, cameras and other technologies. In, uh, in addition, uh, we have another project in Europe that uh, I cannot say exactly where yet, but we're going to be talking at about uh, 20 kilometers worth of, of system, and we're going to be including a lot of uh, new autonomous vehicle capabilities there as well. Uh, we've been working also in, in the U.S. and in the U.K., Right. And once again, how long did it take to actually develop the technology itself? So the tech's developed. It took, it took us a total of uh, two and a half years to get to a product mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. scale. And now we're doing, in a way, two things. Like one, um, the hardware side of things, if you will, is basically complete. 
So we're ready there. Obviously, you always have things you can do, but we're good. And the, the place we're putting out most of our effort is on the data platform. We are creating new ways to integrate new types of sensors and whether it is and using new ways of collecting data to feed our data system. So in the future, um, when cameras and radars mature to be able to collect the type of data we collect, then our system will be ready to use those those sensors as well. Right. And a really quick question. Uh, what's the level of redundancy uh, with the current uh, setup? So we have a few different layers of redundancy. Let's see if I'm answering your question here. Hmm. And the studs themselves, uh, obviously, no stud is reliant in any other stud. And we can, we can uh, actually lose, I would say, about 50% of our studs and still provide better accuracy than systems today. Uh, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that we would provide the same level that you know we seek to provide, but it would be better than what we have today, even at just 50%. Um, the gateways have redundancy amongst themselves. So if one gateway fails, then another gateway takes its place. Uh, obviously, we use a cloud services, which has multiple layers of protections and redundancies. So the system itself you know, is, is IoT. It, is, it takes the best practices in IoT redundancy to provide the resilience that only IoT can provide. Can you give me a quick uh, overview of the competitive landscape in this area? Who are your competitors? How many companies are out there? What are they doing? What's the difference? Sure. So um, the first thing I would say is that all the players today in the market only provide macro data. Mm-hmm. They provide what we talked about before. It, you have lots of different types of sensors. You have cameras, you have radars, you have um, you have loops that count vehicles, you have floating car data, be it from cars, from phones. But all these providers give you a high-level understanding of more or less how many vehicles are on the road, how fast are they going, and, you know, and, what, and what do you expect traffic to behave like on a macro level. We are the first players that provide this comprehensive, all-road micro-understanding. To name the type of players that are in the macro field, uh, you obviously on the um, on the floating car data you have you have uh, ways that are connected to Google Maps. You have um, different types of uh, platforms that are trying to aggregate data from different uh, OEMs. You have fleet operators like Uber collecting data and sharing it with municipalities. On the roadside sensing, you have large uh, corporates like Siemens and Kapsch that create large control centers, and they are fueled by smaller sensor players that create sensors to capture these data. Uh, But we don't see them so much as competitors because, again, the value proposition is different. They provide the high-level understanding, and we drill down so that roads can provide value-added services to their customers, the drivers, uh, to make their roads more efficient and to remain a relevant active player in the future of mobility. Right. Understood. And then I have to quickly go back to the question of uh, of privacy then uh, for your own uh, software solution. So for what I, from what I'm hearing from you, uh, I can see that we theoretically we could actually track a vehicle all the all the way from the moment it uh, uh, gets onto the road uh, uh, that's uh, equipped with the Valorant tech and to the moment it uh, gets out of it. So I see some abusive potential in here. Uh, how do you what do you do to mitigate that sort of thing? 
Well, so um, important to remember that the system is by nature anonymous. We ch- we know the fact that there's a big moving object next to us. We don't know who that person, who is in there, what the vehicle is, what the license plate is. We know nothing. So the system is inherently anonymous. So our system cannot exploit. And because we are installed, we serve you know highways. We also don't know where you started or where you ended. Uh, that's something that usually... Uh, you know that floating car data might know we don't know this so we there's no real way to in this way um uh, figure out or abuse it is anonymous and that's one of the big advantages and i, I would like to add as a road operator we are uh, firstly interested in aggregated data for traffic management but um for individual data i mean we don't get want to get to know who's the driver obviously we just want um to surf in case of an accident and be able to understand that a particular car stopped uh on the shoulder of the lane that's it we we don't intend to to go on the private side Right, understood. And uh, Michael, you mentioned that you uh, look to uh, work with uh, uh, highways and motorways. Uh, so you're not really interested in getting, for example, into cities, or is it something that you have uh, uh, somewhere down the pipeline? So, you know, obviously, <laughs> we're interested, we want to make roads wherever they are smart. Mm-hmm. We believe that the most amount of value that we can provide today is for toll roads. Our focus is actually privately operated toll roads because mm-hmm. we found that these are the usually the organizations that we can work the fastest, are able to scale the fastest, etc. And in the future, we will want to provide the benefits of microdata and the benefits of data science to to all roads. And just our current focus is privately owned toll roads. Right. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. And it's time to wrap it up. This is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your week. And I'm going to talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.